0: Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and uh, you can follow along with me in your Bible. This is God's Word to you, because He loves you. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius uh, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph... And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the angels said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that the word became flesh in Jesus and that you dwelt among us, that you knew our woe, you knew what it was to be human, you came near to us. We ask that you would give us tender hearts as we uh, hear this old familiar story. We pray that you would make it fresh to us and that you would draw our hearts to you. And I pray that you would um, open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. And that, um, Lord, you would take your perfect word and uh, through uh, the, your servant who teaches, who is, uh, Lord, you know my sins are many. I pray that you would forgive them and that you would teach this word to your people. Um, that we would our hearts would grow with love and thanksgiving for what you have done for us in Christmas. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I've... If you go to our church, I've shared with you uh, at least a few times that um, one of the main turning points in my life as a teenager when I was about 16, I was kind of a troublemaker, dropping out of school and things. Uh, My parents had uh, some folks come and take me out of my bed, and I was uh, actually taken to a kind of boys' school program on the island of Western Samoa. Uh, For a year and a half, I spent in this uh, boys program to kind of, you know, where you get your life together. And um, this program, there's about 200 boys uh, living on a beach. And uh, the kind of philosophy of this program is you got all these kids they are, uh, you know, smoking weed and dropping out of school and disobeying their parents. Is that uh, the the things that they're doing, uh, the behavior problem, is actually kind of a superficial problem for these kids and for me. Uh, the real problem is underneath those behaviors, there are actually emotions, you know, anger and hurt and shame, that are causing those behaviors. And under those emotions, there are these kind of core beliefs that kids have, are having about themselves. You know, I'm worthless, I'm stupid. And it's those core beliefs that are actually causing the emotions that are causing the behavior. And uh, underneath all that, if you got, if you could way, you know, drive a wedge underneath the behaviors and emotions and the beliefs, there's this naked little child in there that needs to be freed and um, and so uh, as a result, you know this is kind of the, the idea is you've got to get down to the child and so they had these seminars that we would go through and um, uh, in one of the seminars there'd be you know about fifty sixty kids in a in a you know room about this size, and each of us had to get and stand on a chair and talk about our life in front of with the fifty kids all kind of staring at us, and there's a therapist staring at us and um and, you know, you got to dig in there and you got to start crying and you got to start t- talking about the things that happened to you. And I remember there was one kid that got up. He's he probably 260-pound, red-headed, freckled kid uh, with one leg. And after about 20 minutes of kind of prying into this kid's life, it turned out that um, the way that he had lost his leg, well, uh, it wasn't an accident um, that it was shot off by a shotgun, but that he had actually shot it off himself. To get attention. And so here are all of us. We're standing there, the 50 kids, looking at the kid standing on the chair who's just told us that I shot my leg off to get attention. And we're thinking, what are are you going to say to a kid like this? And so um, what the seminar largely told this kid, which is, you know, to some degree it's understandable, is like, son, listen, you've got to love yourself more than this. Okay, you've you got to love yourself, and, um, and which is, is a p- pretty logical thing to say. This kid hates himself, you need to love yourself. Um, but what's underneath that, that seemingly harmless, uh, harmless statement, love yourself, is it's saying, listen, stop shooting your leg off to try to get attention because no one is going to give it to you. All you got is you. And so if you're going to be loved, you've got to be the one doing it. And for many of us, you know, that's, <laughs> that makes sense, right? Because who of us, you know, here's a kid who's so hungry for attention that he's shooting his leg off. Who of us is going to, you know, going to be able to give him that kind of attention or the kind of love that he's, he's looking for, right? And so, I mean, most of us, you meet someone like that, you say, listen, please, just go to school, you know, go to college, get, have a career, start a family, please. You know, the world is just screaming at us, will you please just be normal? Please don't be a pathetic weakling. Please don't do that. And for many of us, that, that demand that, uh, that the world, that the therapist is saying to him, uh, that people are saying to us, that is driving much of our life. Please do not be pathetic. You know, you know, that's driving why we're going to college. That's why we're getting a job. And, uh, and you know, that happens the same in the religious community, right? Please just, please just read your Bible and come to church and be a, be a nice, clean, all-American kind of person. Please do that, right? And which are all good things, right? (laughs) Go to college, have a family. These are all perfectly good things. But when that's the only thing we're doing is please don't be pathetic. We get through our life and we're doing all those things. And at the end of it, we find out that no one really knows us. No one really knows who we are. No one knows the weakling. No one knows the vulnerable naked person on the inside. And what we have in this passage that I just read to you is the creator of the world, the God, who, the, the God whose love is shining through all things, the beautiful meaning behind everything, does something in history. And in the middle of a world that's saying to us, don't be pathetic, don't be weak, um, make something in your life, God comes and he becomes a poor, weak, screaming, vulnerable little baby in a cow, you know, stall, being born. There's God. There's the baby Jesus. And to a world that says to us, listen, I don't want to mess mess with your brokenness. I don't want to mess with your sin. I don't want to mess with the problems, the the weak things that are in your life, the vulnerabilities. The world's saying, I don't want to deal with it. God says, but I do. I want to know you, the real you, the, the vulnerable you, the weak you, the sinful you, the hurting you. I'm not going to run away from it. I want to enter into it. And that's what Christmas is about. That's what the little baby is about, the screaming, crying little baby who turns out to be God. And so what we're going to do is we look at this passage, I'm just going to tell you two things, okay? The first thing is that the gospel, the gospel, the gospel is basically what Christians believe. That it, what it means to be a Christian is you embrace, you trust in the gospel. It's the basic Christian message that the gospel is about the nakedness of God. It's about God becoming naked. But secondly, the nakedness of God leads us to fear. First to fear, then to joy, and then to deeper joy. Deep joy. Okay? So those are the two things. The gospel is about the nakedness of God, and the nakedness of God leads us to fear, then to joy, and then to deeper joy. Okay? So first, the gospel is about the nakedness of God. Now... This passage I just read to you um, gives the kind of setting of the story about Jesus, right? Um, uh, look again at uh, at uh, the first five verses, and you can kind of see you'll hear this repetition of the word registration, and you know they went to get registered in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration when Quirinius was uh, governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And um, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to, sorry, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now. For many of us, we read something like that. Is this important part of the story? Um, one of the basic important parts of the story that for some of you is important is that um, this is setting this story in a time in history. Okay, we know who Corineus is. We know who Caesar Augustus are. We know roughly, you know, a couple, within a, a year or two, uh, what year this is happening. This is all recorded history. Now, many people have the idea that um, what you know—the stories about Jesus and the Bible—is kind of all legend. You know, there were all these uh, these Christian communities, and they had these oral traditions, and it's kind of like telephone, and one person told one, you know, another person, and it's about some um, mythical figure who happened a long time ago. Who knows when? And did anyone even see him? Did Jesus ever even exist? The Gospels aren't that at all. We know this time. Of, we know this place, we know this time, we can name when God became a man. We can name when these things happened. It happened in history. And so the first thing is we're, we're not talking about um, just kind of spiritual things that happened in heaven or in the spiritual world or in our hearts. We're about, talking about things that happened in history. And one of the things that this says, you know, all the picture here, talking about the Caesars and the governors, it's all talking about a world of power, you know, where the man is, right? Um, you know, that word registered shows up four or five times, and um, and why is it talking about registrations? What what is that? Why would a king, um, you know, make us take a census of the Roman Empire? Well, for two things. The reason you want to count the people that are in the Roman Empire is because you want to know two things. First of all, you want to know how many people there are, so you know how big your army is. And second of all, you want to know how many people there are, so that you can know how much tax money you're getting. And the big idea here is that the way that peace comes to the world, the way that things are resolved in the world, are through your army and through taxes. Now, which is very interesting. You know, we're, there's a lot of talk about we got an election coming up, and these are the exact same things we're talking about now, right? Are, uh, you know, uh, foreign military affairs and how much should we be taxed? What's the best way to do with the, uh, to solve the world's problems through the economy or through politics? The same questions about our world are being asked in this passage. And yet, when Jesus shows up, Jesus is the true king of the world, where does he go? Where does he show up? You know, does he go to Caesar and say, listen, I, I have the political answers. I know how much we should tax people. I know what to do with the army. I can, I can lead this. Is that where he shows up? No, it's not where he shows up. Where Jesus shows up is in the context of a family. When the king of the world, God becomes a man, he doesn't come as the king in the UN or in the Congress he comes in the broken context of a little family as a naked little baby. And, uh, you know, a couple, uh, a couple of years ago, Shannon and I were watching that series, Lost. Probably some of you saw that TV show, Lost. And uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about all these people who crash land on a, um, on a uh, tropical island. And I, I don't really understand what happens <laughs> throughout the show. Uh, so I can't explain it to you. But, um, but one thing I do know is that about a third of the show... Uh, is, is about these flashbacks, these people who crash land on this island. There's all these flashbacks in their life, um, the, the things that are happening in their life. And almost all of the flashbacks are about um, their families and things that are happening in their families and largely dysfunctional families. And actually, I saw an interview with J.J. J. Abrams, who made Lost, and he was kind of the writer, director, the uh, creative mind behind it. And the interviewer was asking, you know, why is it that your show... Actually, on the surface, it looks like it's about this weird island that all these people crash land on. But really, it's about dysfunctional families. Why is that? And uh, what Abram says um, is that because the most fundamental relationships and events in our lives happen in our family. The most uh, fundamental relationships and events that happen in our lives happen in our families. They shape us more than anything. And... um, you know, for many of you, that's very true. That you, would, you know, you don't get to choose your family. You don't get to choose uh, who those people are that you're going to live with, you're going to share your childhood with. And for many of us, you know, the things that we're most ashamed of that we've ever done are things that we've done in our families. And the things that have hurt us, that have damaged us the most, are things that have happened in our families. And so, um, here we have... Jesus, the King of the world, the Savior of the world, the one who has the answer to the world's problems, not showing up in Congress, not showing up in the White House, showing up in the messy world of a family. And here we have this little Virgin Mary. Uh, you know, she's probably you know freshman in high school. You know, braces. She's riding on a donkey, going to get uh, registered, and you know, and she's a virgin. No one believes she's a virgin, and she's she's with the uh, the fiance. And it's, it's it's poverty, it's weakness, it's messiness, and that's where Je- Jesus walks into. That's where he wants to show up and work. And, um, you know, many people have kind of given the picture of when, you know, Jesus was born. He wasn't crying, you know, he was born with a halo or something and he's you know yes mother uh coming out of the uh um you know breastfeeding just right probably uh i highly doubt that that uh jesus came out you know purple looking like an alien screaming his head off coming into the you know the hurting world just that's what he was doing he was sharing our woe he was sharing our weakness with us And what that is, you know, what Christians have always said is that this little baby, this mysterious, uh, was the mysterious maker behind the whole world. That here is the God who spoke the universe into existence. He can't even speak now. And the God who, you know, holds the stars into place. He can't even hold himself up. He needs a mother to hold him. The God God who has for, you know, thousands and thousands of years just been feeding uh, all the animals and all the humans in the whole globe, he can't even feed himself. He needs his mother to lift himself. He's becoming weak. And the picture is that the great, powerful God, all-knowing, wise, um, uh, perfect, is entering into our weak, vulnerable nakedness. <laughs> that's, that's what Christmas is about. And um, why is he doing that? Well, um, as I said, the gospel is about the nakedness of God. And, um, one of the things, at the very least, is that God is entering into our hurt, um, every, uh, difficult, painful thing about being human in the world, God is stepping into it and can say, I know what it's like, I want to be with you in it. But also, you know, Jesus doesn't say we're, you know, we're just victims, we're just hurt, we're just hurt people that other people, uh, hurt us, um, um, Jesus says that the problem is deeper than that as well. And, uh, you know, it turns out that Jesus is actually going to be naked again in this story. Jesus' story starts off with him being a naked baby, and, uh, and he's going to be naked again. Um, at the end of the story, when he's dying on the cross for our sins, and he's uh, naked on the cross and bloody... And uh, there's Jesus naked again. There's Jesus weak again. And what he says is that we, it's, it, we have a problem that we're both people who are wounded and have been hurt and we're people who are hurting others, who need to be forgiven and who need to be washed. And actually, you even see that in this, uh, in this text where you look again at verse 7 where it says, uh, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And Luke, the author who's writing this, at the end of the Gospel of Luke is going to say almost the exact same phrase where he's going to say, um, and they wrapped him in burial linens and laid him in the tomb. Here is a taste of what Jesus is going to do for us. Um, That Jesus is going to be naked on the cross and die for us. That the real issue at the bottom of our hearts is not that I've been wounded. It's that I don't believe that God is good. I don't trust him. I don't trust him with my life. And the big message of God descending, coming out of heaven, and coming into our weakness is to not say to the kid who blew off his leg, love yourself. It's the far deeper and more profound statement of be loved. Be loved by the maker of the world. Be loved by your maker. He wants to enter into your life. The way deeper, way more profound. Not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, not because you can even win his love, but because he wants to give it to you freely. And I'll tell you, that's what the gospel is. God entering in and loving us freely. And when you believe that when, that, when that message, that truth, buries itself deep inside of you, deep in your hidden chambers, it begins to transform you. It begins to work on you. And that leads to our second point, that not just that the gospel is about the nakedness of God, but second, the nakedness of God leads us to fear, joy, and deeper joy. Okay? So, um, now... For some of you, um, you might be uncomfortable with the idea that Christians say that um, you know Jesus was born of a virgin, and you know I'm not sure much what to say about that. I, the only question I kind of ask myself in that, okay, if God was going to become a man, how would that work? And I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure he'd figure that out. So, um, so as soon as we embrace the fact that what is happening in Jesus is that God became a man. This is a deep mystery. This is something unique. This is not something that ever has happened or will ever happen again in history. What's the response to that? And what we see in this passage is that once we realize what's happening, our first response will be fear. Fear. And in verse 8, this scene kind of shifts from the manger into this group of shepherds. And that's exactly their response. Look again at verses 8 and 9. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Now... Um, this, we have actually another instance of the nakedness of God. You know, Christians believe that uh, the world that we're living in is, is both vi- uh, visible things and invisible things. You know, that uh, there's a God who's invisible, there are angels, and uh, there's evil in the world. And uh, what's happening here is that the shepherds are kind of getting to see things how they real, really are. The, the world, the universe is kind of becoming naked to them. And uh, uh, in particular, in verse 9, it says that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And uh, the glory of the Lord is kind of a religious-sounding word. Uh, You know, we think of a bright light or something like that. But what the glory of the Lord is is who God really is, his character, you know, his, his justice, his love, his creativity, everything about God. What these shepherds are doing is they're seeing... Who God is, you know. So, like, when you're uh, out at night and you're looking out at the stars, and you have that sense of awe and wonder, the Bible tells us that what you're getting a taste of is the glory of God. Look at His creativity. Look at how brilliant His wisdom is. Is you're seeing the glory of God, and um, and here the shepherds see the very glory of God naked before their eyes, and the response to that is fear. When you see God, how He really is, the, you know the standard response is is fear. You wet yourself. You know they have their their shepherds robes on. There's puddles around them. They're, they don't. You know they. It's sheer terror when you uh, when you behold God, how He really is. And uh, you know when I first became a Christian, um, that idea that you fear God, that God would be someone you're afraid of, or that you would be afraid of, was kind of a, it was unsettling to me. You know it shows up throughout the Bible. Uh, fearing God, I thought God loved me, um, should I be afraid of him? But, you know, honestly, I think in Bellingham, people would get that idea. Um, because, you know, in a place like Bellingham, was a recreational kind of place, there's something very satisfying about being in a place where you're in danger. You know, I mean, snowboarding and mountain biking and rock climbing. There's a sense, uh, I'm going to go off this cliff, and uh, this could just destroy me. And um, there's something very satisfying about being... Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe being in the presence of a holy God who could be terrifying, maybe there'd be something deep and, and fulfilling about that. I, I think there would be. But one of the differences is that... Um, the reason why we like snowboarding and uh, mountain biking and uh, you know climbing and things like that is because snowboarding is something that we can master you know gravity is nine point six meters per second squared and it 's always going to be nine point six meters per second squared and so um, I can master it i can I know what 's going to happen when I fling my body off there off this I can get good at it um, but you know a couple uh, a couple years ago I was, I was reading this article in the, uh, in the um, uh, New York Times Magazine. Um, it was called Married Happily with Issues. And uh, it's about this woman. She's writing in San Francisco. And uh, and her and her husband are trying to improve their marriage. So they, they go to uh, to counseling. And um, at the beginning of this article, this is what she says. Over the nine years of our marriage, she's talking about her husband, he taught himself to be a master carpenter and a master chef. He was now uh, reading Soviet-era Weight, tra- weight training manuals in order to transform his 41-year-old body into that of a Marine, yet he shared the seemingly widespread aversion to the very idea of marriage improvement. Why such passivity? What did we all fear? Here's a guy who's mastering things, mastering cooking, mastering uh, uh, you know weightlifting, and yet marriage is something they're terrified of and that's something very similar for us what's the difference well in a relationship you can't master the person that's not the goal right if that's your goal you're going to have problems the goal is to know them and to be known and to still love each other at the end of it and there's a different kind of fear there because you're out of control right and i think that that's uh very similar to the fear that the, the shepherds are experiencing as they face God because this is, a, this is a person that they can't master. This is a person they can't control and this is a person who knows everything about them. And I will tell you that the beginning of the Christian life, the beginning of a spiritual life is to be willing to stand before God as you really are and to let him see your naked, vulnerable, weak self, all the truths about who you are and to stand before him as you really are. And um, with all the ways that we judge people, with all the ways that we're bitter, the ways that we're envious, the ways that we doubt our parenting, uh, the disappointments that we have in our life, all of those things, to stand there before God and let him see them all. And um, that's why I say the nakedness of God, to really behold who God is, will first lead us to fear. That's a terrifying thing to do. But once we do that, God does not leave us in fear. Look at what happens. Uh, Verse 10 you know, what is God going to make a wreck like me? It says in ver uh, um, uh the angels say to these shepherds who are struck with fear, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And uh what that means is that the nakedness of God does not leave us in fear, the fear of being known, but it actually leads us into joy. Uh, Jesus is a savior. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I started the story by saying I, I, uh, I got sent away to this program and I was this punk kid. And, and uh, you know, I, part of this program that I was in is, is you don't get to go home whenever you want. So I'm, I'm in Western Samoa. I'm away from my family. I'm with all these kids. And you're there until your life's better. And so they're saying to me, listen, uh, you don't just need to uh, figure out what's in your heart and deal with your emotions and all these things. Uh, but you need to be a leader. You need to be loving. You need to be outgoing. You need to uh, be hardworking. You need to be all these things. And we're not going to let you go home until you do. And here I was, you know, I'm just a stoner kid who's like, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm very shy. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a leader. I'm not loving. I don't, I, I'm not any, I don't have any of these things. And, you know, by some miracle i uh, so I had a friend there. He said, You know you should start praying. just tell God these things and you know i 'd never been to church i didn 't know anything about i, I didn 't know how to talk to god i didn 't know the words and I remember this one uh, this one morning we 're uh, we're, we're all sleeping in kind of a hut about this big we 're all sleeping on the floor, rolling up our mats. And I'm looking around at everyone. It's 6 in the morning. And, um, and I'm sure that I, I just don't have it to make it into this day. The things that they're asking me to do, I don't have it in me. And so I, ju- I, I said, God, I don't know anything about you. Um, I don't know how to talk to you. I've never been, I, 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 but if you, I'm just going to believe. I'm going to go into my day believing you're going to do something. I can't be the person they want me to be. I'm just going to believe you'll do something. And I found very subtly... That day, I'll make a new friend. I, I found myself laughing a little bit. And what there was in that revealing myself to God, standing before God as I really was, is he was beginning to form joy in me. He was joy began to shape. That's what he began to get, uh, because I was loved. And I found a God who was loved, uh, who would love me. And I'll tell you that that's what you see in this text, is that the response is that there's a Savior, that there's someone who meets us in our sin, is the response is joy. You know, the, uh, the shepherds are telling everyone, and uh, there's laughter, and there's all this joy. But then it says this in verse 19. But Mary... Everyone's excited. Everyone's amazed. Everyone's kind of singing and dancing. And then it says, but Mary. And what I want to suggest is that something's happening in Mary that's even deeper than the than the uh, uh, laughter and uh, playfulness and singing and telling the friends that Jesus has done. There's a deeper joy. And um, I'll tell you what I mean by deeper joy. Uh, you know, do you ever have the experience where you go and you visit someone's house and they have kind of photo albums, you know, on the coffee table and you, you're sitting there, there. are In the bathroom, you're flipping through their uh, photo albums. You're like, "Sorry, I don't know what I said." Um, uh, And you're you're looking through this person's life, and it has all their trips to you know to France and their honeymoon. And this is when I was in college, and I went here. And every picture, everyone's smiling and happy. And you're like, "This person had the best life. I can't believe I just..." Look, they've been to all these places. Everything's so happy. And, you know, of course, there's a totally, you know, sliver of the actual percentage of their life. But you get this impression they're so happy. There's so much joy here. And yet all this kind of laughter and being with the friends and stuff, when we look at our life, those aren't the things that are really the things where there's deep joy. You know, you look at a wedding. You know, everyone's excited at the reception. Everyone's dancing. Everyone's having a good time. That's fun. That's joy. But it's a different kind of joy when you're actually saying to one another, I'm never going to leave you. And when you're seeing your bride coming down the aisle, you're not laughing. You're crying. It's a different kind of joy. It's a deeper kind of joy. You know, when a baby is born, it's what C.S. Lewis says, there's a kind of joy that's too good to waste on a joke. And what it says here that Mary is doing is that she's thinking about God has come and visited us. And she say, it says, Mary treasured up these things pondering them in her heart and she's tasted the love of god and she's beginning to internalize it it's beginning to take root down in who she is so that it's actually a deeper kind of joy that, that that outlasts the kind of happy days and the sad days and the um you know good times and my job's going well or things aren't going well in my job or my relationships are breaking apart it outlasts those things it outlasts sickness it outlasts cancer it outlasts death There's a deep joy that can outlast all those things, outlive them all. That's what begins to live in us a deeper joy when we taste the gospel. Because God has come to us and he says, I love you. I want to know you. So the invitation to us in Christmas is to trust in the love that God's shown in us by becoming a naked little baby. And he invites you to come to him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are not far from us. We thank you that you know our woe and that we can be honest with you and stand before you you as we are. I pray that you'd give us courage to do that and that we would find in knowing you and being known a deep joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.